we are going to be jumping back into Romans today and we're going to be looking actually at chapter 7 in 7 verse 7 through uh, verse 13. And this is a, a passage in which the Apostle Paul is addressing Jewish believers in the church in Jerusalem because one of the questions that is going to continually arise among Jewish converts in the early church is, okay, we understand the gospel, but what are we to do with the law? As God's chosen people who have given the Torah, where does the Torah fit into all of, all of this? We believe in Jesus, but are we supposed to give up the Torah? Uh, and in fact, if you look at Galatians, what is one of the things that Paul is dealing with? The primary thing is Judaizers, those that believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but they believed that it was the gospel plus keeping the law that was the real path to fulfillment, the real path to salvation. So this is something that Paul combats consistently throughout his letters. But where I think it would be helpful for us to dig into this is Paul deals with the purpose of the law. Um, he, also, he also speaks uh, toward the nature of what law creates in the, under the, the umbrella of a sinful or fallen humanity, fallen creation. And I think for us to really talk about the passages before us, we have to understand that we live in a culture that is embracing religion, but is rejecting the concept of sin. That we live in a culture and in a society that is pursuing peace at all costs, but it is doing it from the, from the vantage point of unredeemed humanity. And we just have gone through an entire year of absolute unrest. Unrest, COVID, uh, which I heard one, uh, one very intense thinker say, COVID is the greatest surrender of freedom uh, globally uh, in the modern age. We have willingly submitted ourselves to whatever the experts tell us to do to protect ourselves from this thing called COVID. And often at great cost. If we are honest about that, the fact is, is that we have lived as if COVID is the only thing that kills people. When in actuality, the number two killer for people between the ages of 10 and 23 is not COVID, it's suicide. We have an increased reality of violence, of crime. We have racial unrest. We have rising cases of depression and anxiety. The, you know, South Park was not wrong, not that I've ever watched it because it's so ungodly. Uh, someone just asked me, what do you think about deconstruction in the church? And I'm like, why would we need to deconstruct anything? South Park has totally done that for us already. Uh, but the, the whole idea that, that marijuana um, dispensaries are the only thing that have truly benefited from COVID and Jeff Bezos. But I, I, I think that there, is, there is an incredible sense of unrest, a, a really an apocalyptic type of worldview. And someone actually wrote me an email that was bothered by the, the fact that I would use the word apocalyptic. But let me just say, apocalyptic is, is an unveiling and the apocalypse began the moment Jesus Christ touched down on earth 
2,000 years ago. The end of the age began the moment the incarnation happened and that every generation has been expected to believe that Jesus' return is imminent and that the best is yet to come and that we are not going to make the world better for him to return to. He is going to make all things new. In fact, what the scripture declares is that the world is going to continue to get worse. That sin is going to continue to wreak havoc upon the world, even though it's been defeated by Christ on the cross. That the dominions of darkness are a reality. And that the oppression that the world is going to feel is going to bring it to a place where it will almost accept anything to find peace at any cost. I want to share with you guys a passage uh, to kind of get us ready for this little section in Romans. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and what we're going to be looking at really is religion and the sinfulness of sin. And what I'm going to argue today is that law, apart from God, was, was a religion that brought about the greatest condemnation from Jesus himself. And that religion in its nature is the, the highest pursuit of the human heart apart from Christ and the gospel, and it is a delusion that actually brings a false sense of peace often, meaning, purpose, ritual, all of those things that we long for are found in religious experiences. But that doesn't mean that it's truth. And often, religion becomes the thing that reveals sin and at the same time traps us in it because we cannot earn our way to God. We cannot climb the ladder of law. What we need is gospel. What we need is grace. And the gospel is good news because it's down to earth. God come down to us into the midst of our brokenness. In Ephesians chapter 2, we need to understand in a culture that basically continues to say to us that people are essentially good and that if we could just get rid of the different social problems in our society, that the natural goodness of the human heart is going to come out into its full, beautiful blossom, we need to understand what Scripture says. Because Scripture gives us a three-letter word that's very problematic for that worldview. As for you, you were dead. <laughs> just in case you're wondering, without Jesus, what Scripture declares over the human experience is that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. It's a spiritual deadness, but it actually brings about physical deadness, and that is why all of creation groans, and this is why the second law of thermodynamics is, a, is I believe, the, the, the outcome of sin entering the world. Everything is breaking down. Everything is breaking down. It's not getting better. It's breaking down. He said, you were dead in your transgression and sins, which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It's another word for Satan, the dominions of darkness, that there is a spiritual battle raging around us. We are told that the entire world lies under the sway of the wicked one, and yet we continue to turn to the world and its systems and its politics to try to create some kind of relief from the nagging voice of conscience, but it does not provide what it promises. It never can. And this is because it's fallen minds teaching fallen minds. And it says, we're at work in, in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time means all of us, the whole world, we are told, is confined under sin, which is why we need the gospel and why it is such good news, because the bad news is so bad. 
All of us lived among them, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. I was thinking about this, this line, gratifying the cravings of our, our flesh. That nothing reveals the cravings of flesh like TikTok. I, I don't understand TikTok, but I can become as, I like my kids, like I just become mesmerized by just, it's like a, it's like an intervenous like dope just pumped in of just nonsense and emptiness and vanity and posturing and, and mimicking and attempting to stand out, but not having actually anything individual to say and the ability to be famous for the sake of just having followers. It's an insane world that speaks to the absolute emptiness of our world systems. And I am totally convinced that it is a house of cards that cannot sustain itself. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that I don't enjoy it. There's a couple of accounts that I think are really funny, uh, really like PDUSA, but not that I should have TikTok, which I do. I'm watching it right now as I, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> That'd be amazing if you're like, I'm sorry guys, I just don't wanna miss that feed. Um, <laughs> It's really terrifying when your pastor actually has the ability to watch a game while he's preaching. <laughs> now, uh, maybe we should just go back to paper books again. I have had people text me and it does pop up occasionally like you said the word wrong and I'm like, don't tell me while I'm preaching, that's so distracting. But I think that this, this picture of the world, it's like you look at, the, look at the amount of information that's coming, the things that are promising, but one of the things that's one of the the, the central notes in our current climate is a continued diminishment of sin. It's sickness, it's victimhood, it's, it's these, these things. We're more comfortable with illness than we are with the idea of sin. But you remember G.K. Chesterton gave the shortest response ever when the London Times posed the question, what is wrong with the world to a series of literary thinkers and Chesterton wrote in, dear sirs, I am. And that is the essence of what we are dealing with because sin, as I've said again and again, is not the little things that we do wrong, but it is our rebellion against God and our refusal to allow him authority in our lives. And, and why this is so problematic when you connect it with religion is it is the fundamental belief that if I do these things, God will accept me when in actuality, the religion reveals the sin and then you're entrenched in it. You make yourself feel better by adhering to it more fervently without actually ever finding the relief that you're looking for. And this is why Christians burn out and walk away from their faith because they don't understand the essence of the gospel. They don't understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the end of the law. He is the, over, the one who overturns religion. He's the one that said, and many will come to me in the last days and they will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? And he will say, away from me, I never knew you. He doesn't deny that they did all kinds of things in his name. Most terrifying passage in scripture. Tara Isabella Burton, I quoted her last week, or a couple weeks ago. She is uh, the writer of this new book on kind of Western culture's religious pursuit essentially without God. It's called, it's called Strange Rites, um, uh, the new religions of the godless age. And she is absolutely promoting religion 
And she says this, our sins, if they exist at all, lie in insufficient self-attention or self-care, false modesty, undeserved humilities, refusing to shine bright. You're a bad A and you don't know it. One of the top sellers in the nation right now. We have not merely the inalienable right, but the moral responsibility to take care of ourselves before directing any attention to others. That is the proclamation of the religion of this world. And it is the false peace that our society will grab a hold of at all costs, but it will only leave bitterness in their mouth. Because the proclamation of the scripture is the exact opposite of that is that there is no self-discovery apart from a right relationship with God as we say yes to his yes declared over our lives in Jesus. And the restoration of that right relationship is derived from this fundamental belief that the primary work of the gospel is not God getting us out of hell into heaven, but the primary work of the gospel is God coming out of heaven and coming back into the human heart. Because it says, if anyone be in Christ, all things are new. New creation is the only way. And what we have is a world that is pursuing religion to ease the nagging voice of conscience. And not just religion, but the religions of this day are political movements. Listen, it doesn't matter whether it's Make America Great Again or Black Lives Matters. Nothing can satisfy the human heart except the gospel. And we can give ourselves to these things and we can follow fallen minds, teaching fallen minds, and we can believe the lies that, you know, this next generation is going to really turn things around. But have we stopped reading the Bible? Because the Bible tells us something fundamentally that we have forgotten, that sin continues to be the heart of the problem because it's always a problem of the heart. And when we forget that, what we do is we just repeat history. We are so fascinated with the new romancing, whether it's nationalism or Marxism, both rampant in America right now, and both of those absolutely failed philosophies. Why would anyone grab a hold of Marxism and try to interpret it through a gospel lens? That's what Tolstoy did. That's why Solovyev, the great Russian mystic thinker, thought that Tolstoy was the perfect antitype or prototype of the Antichrist himself. In fact, I just finished a book by him called uh, The Spirit of Antichrist, written in 1890. And he basically was using Tolstoy as an example of what the Antichrist would be like. Now, it doesn't matter if you believe there's gonna be an actual Antichrist at the end of the age or not. I personally do believe that. Uh, I don't believe in the rapture, although it sounds cool. Uh, But I do believe that history is moving toward a culmination of all things. And never have we lived in a time where there is a movement toward a one global order. And and the technological age has made that feasible. So, you know, I can't totally dump my Calvary Chapel roots. It's still part of who I am. Uh, And uh, and the fact is, is that it doesn't actually matter whether you believe there's going to be an actual Antichrist or not. Because what we're told in Scripture is the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well. And in this little book on the Antichrist, what he sees, he's imagining Tolstoy. Solovyev writes this book, and what he sees in Tolstoy is Tolstoy had just written a book on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And, and in this book, in the Sermon on the Mount, what he desired to do was to eradicate Christianity of the embarrassing supernatural components, the deifying of Christ, and to take the simple ethics of the kingdom of God as found in the Sermon on the Mount and just apply them. And what Soloviev said is that is the essence of the spirit of the Antichrist. In fact, listen to what he says about the Antichrist in this short little parable. He says, the Antichrist is this man who's conscious of the great power of spirit in himself. He was always a confirmed Christian and his clear intellect always showed him the truth of what one should believe in. He understood the good, God and the Messiah, Jesus himself. In these he believed, but he loved only himself. He believed in God, but in the depths of his soul, he involuntarily and unconsciously preferred himself. He believed in good, but the all-seeing eye of the eternal knew that this man would bow down before the power of evil as soon as it would offer him a bribe not by deception of the senses and the lower passions, not even by the superior bait of power, but only by his own immeasurable self-love. And so in the story, this man is becoming more and more powerful as a communicator of the gospel, and he is preaching a social gospel, calling people to imitate the ways of Jesus, but he is showing himself to be a benefactor of Jesus rather than Jesus himself being the source of the things he's doing. And when he becomes frustrated that he's not experiencing the power that he believes he should be experiencing due to the sacrifice that he is making for this God and his own self-love and pride, he comes to a place of despair and decides to throw himself off a cliff. And as he throws himself off the cliff, this power grabs him and saves him and throws him back up onto the hill. And before him appears this beautiful angelic creature that says, I am your father and you are my beloved son. If you allow my spirit to come into you, I will demand nothing of you as that false God who died like a fool on the cross and is buried. I will give you power and will not even ask for you to give me credit for it. And the man says yes. And this spirit creature breathes into him power and influence, and he leads the world to a false peace. And so is his story. And the picture is, is that Satan comes as an angel of light. And if you think that sounds far-fetched, let me just tell you, that ideology is alive and well in the church today. Because we have a whole culture that is presenting on a weekly basis essentially what Tara Isabella Burton talks about in the new religions of the godless age. We have replaced the gospel with self-help. We have told people how they can experience their best self. We've given classes on Enneagram. We want you to know yourself better than you know anything. In fact, we know that you will come to church if we help you know yourself better than you know Jesus. But it's a lie. And it speaks to the world in which we live. And let me just tell you, when I read that short story, it freaked me out. I had nightmares last night. Because then I immediately was like, Lord, do I love myself more than I love you? And I just realized that what McShane said, for every one look you take into your own heart, take ten looks to Jesus. Because what it does reveal is there is mixture. And wherever sin is alive and well, self-love and pride and impersonal exaltation is often at play. And these are the things that go hidden 
in religion and hidden in the church. And this is why the church is the most deadly place for sin to take root in our lives because it's the place where we feel the most okay with God even when we're not okay. And that's why I share that story with you because that is what our culture is presenting because our world is desperate for a Messiah right now and we would love a Messiah that says, I will save you and require nothing of you. I'm here to fulfill everything you ever wanted. Don't worry, you don't like sexual ethics? Don't worry, you can do what you want. You, you don't wanna give up your possessions? Don't worry, you can have it all. That's what the world is looking for, but none of that satisfies. And every time we try to be our own gods, don't we make a horrible mess of it? But religion allows us to cloak those selfish pursuits with spiritual meaning, and it makes it more difficult to get to the root of, which is why Paul says in Romans 7, look at this, Verse 7 and 8. And when, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? So those Jewish believers, is, is the Torah bad? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin, notice this, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So the commandment actually provoked that which was within there's an ugliness in the human heart that can even take the things that are beautiful and of God and pervert them for selfish realities. And it says, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I believe that Paul is, is actually bringing us back to the creation account where our first parents in the garden, God has given them the whole garden. He says, but of this tree you cannot eat. And sin is almost being personified like the, like the serpent himself. And what does the serpent utilize to draw our first parents into sin? He utilizes the very law of God. And he says, did God really say and what he creates is instead of the law being a thing that keeps them in covenantal relationship with him by faith, instead the focus becomes on the parameter and what God might be keeping from them. And so it is that sin did not exist before the desire to become one's own God. And so in this, what Paul is saying is something that is powerful, that religion has the ability to reveal the reality of sin, but it also can feed its appetite if it's, because religion can't save, only the gospel can. So the gospel reveals sin, but instead of keeping you drenched in shame and guilt, which is what many of the activities in the church today are driven by as we become more and more acutely informed by all of the controversies that are in conflicts that are happening in our society politically um, and socially. It is easy for the church to become a place where we are constantly told what our sins are, but we are not given any relief from them. And we feel at least good that we're going to church to hear about these things, but we also are told that the only appropriate response is to remain guilty and shame-filled. That's the antithesis of the gospel. And so the fact of sin is revealed by religion, but at the same time, the presence of sin is most deeply rooted by the futility of religion. In fact, what I see again and again, it's like the moment someone puts parameters on me, this is a perfect example, I drive with my wife, she always says, honey, the speed limit's 35. And I'll be, in my mind, I'm like, I like the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And I'm like, I'm like, I feel like there's a 10 mile grace, always. 
Like, have you ever been pulled over for just going 10 miles over the speed limit? I haven't. I'm 47. I feel like that's a long time. The odds are in my favor to always go 10 miles over the speed limit. Uh, and, and she's like, that's not what the, I'm like, in the moment she says it, she doubles down. I double down and go 10 more miles over the speed limit because I'm frustrated. And in my 1968 Suburban, that feels like 75 miles over the speed limit because there's no headliner in that car and it has a 327 V8 which is the greatest creation of America ever. No. <laughs> so this is, this is the, the reality is, is that the moment we, our perimeters, so like you have kids, you say, don't touch that. What's the first thing they do? They touch that. The, because the parameter, and see, the reason that we do that is because our tendency in fallen minds with fallen bodies is to fixate on the law rather than to fixate on the one who has given the law for the purpose of protecting us, that it was issued out of love. God didn't give the law to prove that people were lawless. He gave the law because he wanted to create parameters by which the children of Israel could maintain covenant faithfulness with him. But the fact is, is that people were incapable of keeping the law and they became fixated on the law and they replaced the lawgiver with the law itself and that became their worship. And that is why it also, it became the means by which they, they quieted the nagging voice of conscience, but at the same time always felt condemned by that voice, never free from it. And this is why I think religion is such a danger. When I was not a believer and I wasn't in the church, sin was fun, okay? I enjoyed it. It took its toll on me. I liked sleeping around. I liked doing drugs. I liked taking advantage of people. It was always fun in the moment. I didn't like the wreckage that was left behind me. People that do not find the gospel and go to church to get relief from those things they did wrong, they become more acutely aware of how they're broken. But if they do not, if they aren't given the solution, which is the gospel, what they find themselves is entrenched. It's the church becomes almost like an opiate, like Marx said, which it makes them feel at least good about the guilt they can't get rid of. And that's not what we're in the business of. Does that make sense? Because I really believe the church is a place where people actually try to quiet the nagging voice of conscience. They become ever increasing aware of their sin. What does the scripture say? Always coming, always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Because if it doesn't lead to relationship with Jesus, there's something fundamentally wrong with your understanding of what the gospel is. And I'm not trying to scare you into wondering if you're saved, but it does say as a community, we should be asking ourselves, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the fact is, is that the law reveals sin. As I like to say, it's like a plumb line from heaven. It can't produce what it proclaims. It can't create for us the solution to the problem that it uncovers. But our attempts to keep it at least keep us coming back and we end up in a cycle. And that's why I think ultimately so many Christians just freak out and walk away. And let me just tell you, you can be born again, receive the Spirit of God, know the reality of Jesus, and go right back to law and find yourself in that place of despair, even as a child of God. And I wanna just tell you, I'm passionate, if you're, not, if you're not sensing that I'm passionate about this, it's because I just lost a friend that I led to the Lord 
11 years ago to suicide two weeks ago. Young woman, this church, first altar call I ever did at the annex, Anna Blair, came forward one night, prayed to receive Christ. I met with her in my office that week and I just fell in love with her. She was rough and tumble. She had this beautiful voice. She played this song that she had written for me called Pretty Bird. She could barely play guitar, but she was just mesmerizing as a singer. And even her guitar playing just had this charm to it because it was so raw and rough. She ended up getting pregnant through a one-night stand with a friend, with a guy at the church. And I really struggled, I think, with a lot of shame around it. But the community came around her. She was super involved. She was on the worship team. Uh, I had her sing on my record, Acor. Uh, she produced an EP with, um, with a couple guys at the church that produced it for her. I mean, she was very involved in the community. But when she became pregnant, she started to distance herself. She gave birth to her daughter. Um, but after her birth, what she shared with me later when I, I caught up with her, uh, was that, you know, she just, the weight of being a mom that young and not being married was just too much. And she ended up leaving her daughter with the dad, who was a part of the church, and, and went to Alaska to work as a cook, a line cook um, in Nome, Alaska. Like, she went as far away as she could get, like almost to the North Pole, working on the pipeline. And she was there for two years. And when she came back, she came and sat in my office and met with me. And she said to me, I said, Anna, come back to church. We miss you. Like, come be involved. We love you. I'm so glad that you're back. And she said, I feel judged. I feel like I'm, I, I don't feel like I'm wanted. And then she said to me something that was really heartbreaking. She says, I don't, I just don't feel loved. And I honestly, I didn't know how to probe that question. All I could say was, that's not true. You're totally loved. Jesus loves you. I love you. We love you. I don't know if she was talking about God or talking about people. I think she was talking about both. And she believed a lie. I think she knew Jesus. I think she had a real conversion. I had many deep conversations with her. But isolation is the devil's playground. And she separated herself from, the, from, from her community. And she found herself at, at just being struggling with what I found out was a lot of mental illness and depression. And two weeks ago, on a Wednesday, she posted a picture of herself with her daughter and then took her life that night. I don't even know the details of it. I can't get the family to get back to me. I'm actually thinking about throwing a memorial for her just because I need closure for that. It's really heartbreaking when it's someone that you ministered to and poured into. And I feel the shame of not pursuing her into the dark. And I just encourage you, if there are people that you know that are part of this church or part of your life that are struggling right now, I promise you, depression, anxiety is way more dangerous than COVID. It's taken a toll on our world. It's taken a toll on us. And people are finding it easy to not go to church, but they're not happy or not going. What they are finding is that the lies of the world and the stresses and the anxieties and the political wars that were happening on social media, it was disgusting last year. And it, it is just like shameful. To Je Jesus' heart was broken over the way that Christians treated each other over varying views in the world of politics, which is all a bunch of sham anyway. We need Jesus. People need the gospel. They were like, why don't you talk more about those things? Because I don't because I, I, I I'm not going to add to that. All I know for sure is that Jesus seeks and saves that which is lost. And that he died for the victim and the victimizer. And therefore, my responsibility is to just be like head down. I'm distracted by everything. I don't need to be distracted by more things. 
I already referenced South Park unintelligently. So just know that I, it's not like I've got, got it all figured out. I'm just saying I do know for sure that the only safe place is abiding in Christ. That I know for sure. And I do believe that Jesus' love was greater than the lie that Anna believed. But it tells me that when you believe that your performance defines who you are, you will find yourself in a place of despair. Because religion can't save, it kills. And it feeds sin rather than releasing us from it. Religion increases sin and it hides its reality. This is one of the scariest aspects in verses 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing on the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Have you guys ever read the conversion of Martin Luther, the, the man who God used to bring the Reformation? That was his thing. He was a zealous religious monk who would go to great lengths to prove his worth to God. And then he realized in all of his effort to be religious, it kept increasing his sin and he found that he hated God. He hated him. He saw him as cruel because he was confusing the law with God. And what Paul says in Galatians is the law is a taskmaster. All it does is reveal that you're screwed up. All it reveals is that you are sinful. And we need to have an understanding of sin because the more we understand what it is and the more we are willing to confess it, that to be a saint is just to be a sinner who's been forgiven, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you, that it creates a humility. I think one of the signs that, that a church is becoming more religious than it is gospel-centered is when you sense an overarching arrogance. And it can be an arrogance in knowledge like some of the more astute, what I call dead orthodox churches. Uh, and I'm not talking about orthodox, orthodox, Eastern orthodox. I'm talking about evangelical American churches that pride themselves in right doctrine, but they're dead right. But I've also seen that same kind of arrogance in really charismatic churches where they pride themselves in experience. If either of those movements aren't keeping Jesus at the center, you got a problem. You got a problem. And so what, is, what are we told here is how religion, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, the law comes in and sin came alive and I died. It started killing me. I started feeling the weight of it. It couldn't produce what it promised. If you can keep it, you'll be blessed, but I couldn't keep it. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing once again, there is, sin becomes personified. It actually seized upon the religious impulse and says, see, you're not good enough. See, you can't be saved. It's the lie that Anna believed. You're not good enough. They don't want you. God is not happy with you. What the enemy wants to do is to utilize our sin against us as a weapon to make us believe that God really does love us based upon our performance. And if you don't think that's a powerful impulse, I promise you, everything that we know in our earthly experience, love tends to be pretty contingent. Even as parents, my love for my children does seem to come up when they're acting in a particular way. That's not true in the sense that it doesn't matter how horrible they are, 
they know that they are safe. And my, I believe my responsibility as a parent is to show my children grace no matter what path they choose, no matter what they choose to believe, that the only thing I can model to them in regards to the gospel is that they see that I believe that on my worst day, Jesus is crazy about me and that I believe the same for them and I have to live that out. But that's not that natural to the human heart. We lose our patience with our kids, with our spouses. I mean, this is why I love the TV show, Ted Lasso. It's that good because it's the closest thing to a legitimate grace-filled Christian I've seen on television, except for that episode where he slept with a woman, but everything else. Uh, but the, the picture is like, what would it look like if there was someone in the world that actually believed the absolute best about everyone, that really loved people, that cared way more about people around them? And isn't it funny that it's the graciousness that makes it a comedy because it seems so unbelievable, because it's not what we experience in our society. People are vicious. And his ability to willfully endure the mockery of of an entire society as he tries to coach a national uh, soccer team, football, without knowing anything about it, and his willingness to continue to love on and care for everyone around him even when they're working against him. If only Christians drew on the power of the Holy Spirit and lived more like that, we would be onto something. And I think that here is the thing. Sin hides its reality as it increases in our lives, when we don't connect ourselves to the gospel and we connect ourselves to religion, what it creates is a community that practices imitation. It practices showmanship. It's the duplicity of Rabbi Zacharias. The sadness of that is that's a common thing of people putting forward a front if I could borrow from the words of player, baby come back, of false bravado, you know that line? If you don't know player, baby come back, go listen to that song, it's a great song, it should be a worship song. Um, Jesus come back, no, no we should just change it to that. That wouldn't that be horrible? Uh, but I, I think that that's the thing, it's the, the falseness, when we present ourselves as having spiritually arrived, when we present ourselves to the world as like, I know Jesus and I'm, and if that's what you're looking for, I know that a lot of people, I've had people tell me they have left Door of Hope because they were uncomfortable with my willingness to talk about my weaknesses. What they wanted, were like, no, 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 you're the pastor, you should be better than me. And I'm like, I might know more about this particular thing, I might not know more about this thing, I can't really speak to why God has put me in this position, but let me just tell you, if you think that you're going to a church to find someone who literally has already arrived at some sort of holy sainthood, you are deceived. Because all I would say is that too many Christians, too many churches, and too many leaders present what they believe to be the ideal when in actuality there is is always mixture. There is always sin in what we do. And this is why we can't hide our sin. And if the church was to truly function in a way that is not religious, but gospel centered, it would be a safe place for us to confess our sin as quickly as it comes in, because there is no guilt or shame in the gospel. There isn't. It's it's life and life abundant. And I don't have to be embarrassed to say that 
on my best day, even when I'm functioning in the power of the Spirit and preaching and people get saved, that I may have tried to run over someone on the way to church. That is a reality. That I got snappy after church with my wife because I'm tired or the flesh or I ate too much or I drank too much or all these things that can continue. And the more I surrender those things and confess those things, the more I begin to find victory over them. It isn't through my willing myself toward Toward salvation, it is becoming the Christian that I am. It's remembering that we're not working toward salvation, we're working from it. It's remembering that in Christ, all shall be well, all is well. It's recognizing that no matter how dark the days get, that Jesus has not lost control of his world, and that for whatever reason, he has chosen to use foolish, silly, broken conduits like you and I to be a part of the great rescue mission of heaven, of God seeking and saving that which is lost. And if you feel lost today, I want you to know you're the perfect candidate for being found. Jesus has nothing to offer someone who thinks they're already arrived. He has everything to offer to one who recognizes that they can't save themselves. Religion increases sin, but it sadly hides its reality, and it's what creates the dishonesty that we often find. Human sin is human arrogance because it involves human deeds that do not correspond to the divine deed that has been accomplished in Jesus. And I think that we deceive ourselves in the process of trying to overcome sin with religion. And this is why religion is so dangerous. Finally, religion anchors us in sin and creates death. What a, what a happy, positive message this is today. Hey, when you teach through a book, you don't get a, you don't get a pick and choose. Uh, so the law is holy. It's a revelation of God's very nature. But that's why it's impossible. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death. The law becomes almost like a flashlight into the very reality of our sinful experience, which is meant to cause us to humbly cast ourselves in dependence upon Jesus, not a flashlight in so that you can try harder. I, I always say that it's, the, we don't climb ladders. The ladder is not our symbol. Can you imagine if there was, instead of a cross, there was just a ladder behind us? And that's the symbol, you know, the, the motto of Door of Hope is one rung at a time. No, that's not, that's not helpful. <laughs> we can climb our way up. But that is every, every religious movement in the world is driven by a ladder theology. Do these things and God will accept you. Even the religion of the secular age that Tara Isabella Burton is talking about, it is still a ladder theology because it is discovering the God within yourself and then you working toward whatever that fulfillment is. You have the right to write whatever it is, but your satisfaction is dependent upon your own effort. It's just as exhausting. It's just as false. And it is just as guilt and shame producing as any other religion. Human lies happen when human beings try to avoid Jesus Christ. And this is why the law can't save us. We need the one who gave the law and fulfilled it. This is why Romans says that Jesus is the end of the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good 
in order that sin may be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, it's, it's what I've heard referred to as the exceeding sinfulness of sin. That sin blinds and perpetuates itself. Sin produces sin. Sin is a cause and effect. We can't escape it. It comes from within. It comes from without. It even comes from the unseen realities around us. And so the moment you overcome one sin in your life, as I've shared the illustration before, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You're like, yes, I've overcome that. And then you're like, and it's just again and again hitting these things. And things, even at 47, after being a Christian now for 21 years, it's things that I thought that I had overcome 15 years ago. Like, I have conquered that. And then just all of a sudden, wait, where did that come from? Thoughts that I didn't want. One time I heard a pastor say that a woman came up to me and said, Pastor, will you cast some demons out of me? And he said, sure, but I'd be curious to know, first of all, what are those demons? And she, and, and she goes, I have a demon of anger. I have a demon of lust. I have a demon of jealousy. And she listed off this thing. And he's like, that's crazy. I have all those things without demons. And that's why we need Jesus. Doesn't mean that there isn't a demonic influence upon those impulses. And Satan doesn't play fair. And believe me, I was a little skeptical of how, how real spiritual warfare was until I moved to Portland. And then it does, you know, I used to say, listen, some people would have us believe there's a demon under every rock. And I'm like, not true, except maybe in Portland. There might, might be one under every rock in Portland. But this is the fact is we live in a spiritually dark place and the religious impulse is working itself out all around us and people are desperate for relief. And we have the power to bring it. Religion anchors us in sin and creates death, but the gospel anchors us in Christ and brings life and life abundantly. And we have to be okay with the, with the fact that sin is a part of what we are and it has infiltrated every arena of our existence. And the way that we experience freedom from it is that we cast ourselves upon Jesus. We need to know that we're sinful. We can't, you can't get rid of the concept of sin to free yourself from guilt. That's what society is trying to do. Nor can you do enough things to free yourself from guilt. We have to come to the one who has eradicated guilt and shame by killing death and sin in the dominions of darkness itself upon the cross of Calvary. And this is why I love being around people that know what they've been saved from. My prayer is that many of you probably have been Christians your whole life and, and, you're, and I'm so grateful for that. But the underbelly of that is that we often think that the sin of those people is much worse than ours. Or we become blind to, because we have religious impulses, even as born-again believers, we become blind to the areas of brokenness. So we, you notice that in the pulpit, do you know how often we stomach pride in the pulpit with just no, no, it's like, I don't really care if they're proud as long as they're not sleeping around. And yet we're told that pride is an abomination and often I would argue that it is pride that led them to sleeping around. And the fact is, is that we, we are selective in our sanctification. We're not okay with this sin, but then we're, we're okay with this. And we, we play fast and loose with what we want to follow when what we need to be concerned with is not this or that thing. What we need to be concerned with is, am I completely surrendered to Jesus and his lordship? Last week, I'll close with this story. We had baptisms um, at the Northeast building. And there's a guy named, uh, named Lewis. You guys know who Lewis is? 
Lewis is the, is the young Hispanic man that always would sit in the front row here. Uh, he's at the Northeast building. He was here like last month because Northeast wasn't open yet. Um, he was in prison uh, with gang violence. And when he got out of prison, uh, he got cleaned up with drugs. Gang violence got plugged into Union Gospel Mission. He ended up homeless, ended up at Union Gospel Mission, gets radically saved, joins Door of Hope. Lewis knows what he's been saved from. And he is expressive about that. I don't know, you guys know exactly. If you don't know who I'm talking about, he's the one that goes, Jesus! Like every Sunday in the front row and it scares everyone because we don't know how to be expressive about anything in Portland. And we're like, that is not okay. That guy's too happy. We don't like happy people in Portland. We want to be casual. We want to be cool. We want to be collected. But we need to maintain a certain level of self-consciousness to be dignified. And he's like, he is like Will Ferrell in, in Elf when he's like, I'm in love and I don't care who knows. That is Lewis. And you're not, but he's way tougher than Will Ferrell because he would beat you up if you, if you challenged him on his joy. No, he wouldn't. But he looks, but he could. He could beat anyone up, all of us up, I think. Portland is not tough. Um, and, and he brings his friend Lawrence to the baptism and to baptize Lawrence because Lawrence, who was here with him every week that he was here, he led to the Lord. And he brought six other guys from the Union Gospel Mission. All ex- It was literally like an entire gang in white t-shirts that all looked like they could take you out, it, all of us together. So excited about Jesus, so like verbally expressive, emotionally expressive. So Lewis baptizes Lawrence and it's done. And I, I say, hey, if there's anyone else, I always present the gospel at the end of the baptism. I said, if, if you've, you know you need Christ today and you put your faith in him or if you haven't, do it right now. But it says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them, that it shall be saved. But if you've not been baptized, the first commandment that Jesus gives to his disciples in, in the Great Commission is go into all the nations making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commands it, and their blessing follows obedience that flows out of faith. It's like a marriage. It's like the wedding day. You may have responded to an altar call, but getting baptized is like that, the wedding day, when you are before God and family and friends, and you say yes to Jesus and no to every other God, because they're all false gods. You got eyes for him only. Four more people got baptized. All of Lewis's friends came forward in their clothes, like two guys got in and got baptized. I mean, incredible. And they all, and just the testimonies, and they were yelling, and all the Door of Hope people were just like, oh my gosh, they are out of control. It was so funny. You could feel the, like, this is awkward. It's too emotional. It's too expressive. I mean, it's only a miracle, but, you know, that's okay. (laughs) <laughs> it's like they're like we're not okay with miracles here we don't, like I mean we want you to have it but we don't want you to act like you've had it you know so be mildly enthusiastic about the fact that you just got saved out of hell and brought into the grips of Jesus Christ and you're screaming at the top of their lungs and all of our people are like yeah whoa that's cool <laughs> and it makes me feel like we don't know what we've been saved from Someone said, it's so easy to preach the gospel in prisons. It's like low-hanging fruit because they don't have anything. Exactly. 
they have actually as much as you without Jesus, which is nothing. They just realize it. And I think that this is the thing. I have seen people in prison respond. I preached the gospel in Russia to a prison um, full of young women who were serving life sentences for murder. And I saw girls terrified. You could tell the difference. The girls that were new to the prison and the girls that had been there. There was a hardness in those that had been there a long time. There was a terror on the face of those who were new to the prison. And I preached the gospel and this girl responded. And it was like the terror was transformed into peace. And I realized that it is possible to spend a life in prison and have more freedom than many of us who live our lives in a place like America. Because we're imprisoned by the false ideologies that are constantly saying this is the answer to this dilemma and none of it solves anything. Only the gospel. Paul says be good citizens, not because he was super into Rome. He said, be good citizens so that you don't have the gospel hindered. Do whatever it takes to bring this subversive message to a lost world. And that is the call upon us. And so I just close with this simple verse. Where the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are under grace. This is not an experience it's not one type of human behavior. It's not a particular condition of human activity. It's not by virtue of our own freedom. We are what we are, but rather we are what we are not. We are new because we're in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's why we need gospel, not religion. All it can do is show us that we're sinners and then keep us in guilt. Let's not hide behind religious activity. Let's be about the gospel and let's not let people like Anna Blair live in the darkness and listen to lies because people are hurting and we have a responsibility as a community of faith to pursue people into the dark because Jesus says that they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Our evidence that we have been transformed is when we're not looking at our own belly buttons but we are looking out into a lost world of hurting people that are made in the image of God. That is our joy. That is where Jesus becomes the most real. Do not lose sight of that. This is what Door of Hope's about. This is a reset, guys. Anna was a wake-up call for me. How many have left Door of Hope that I haven't pursued? I've just been calling people. I feel like I'm in AA meeting where I'm doing like reconciling. I don't know if you're mad at me. You probably are if I'm your pastor, if I was your pastor. I just want you to know you're loved. I've literally texted probably 50 people that used to be at Door of Hope that aren't anymore. And some of them are like, I'm still a door of hope. I just had babies. What is up with millennials and babies? Like, I'm sorry, we'll be back. It's been about two years since we've been, but it's still our church. <laughs> We're just waiting until they're four. Um, <laughs> but this is the reality is that we want to be checking in. We want to be pursuing. We want to be pushing out because we've been freed from the sin and the shame and the guilt. And we want to bring that joy into a dark place. The darker Portland gets the brighter the light of the gospel can shine. Let's not lose sight of that. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel and for its ability to bring transformation to our lives. We do pray right now in this moment for those that might be experiencing the guilt and the shame that comes with just trying to be something that you cannot be in your own effort. Lord, for turning to the church to relieve ourselves of sin but not turning to the 
to the king who's dealt with sin once and for all. Lord, we're not saved by our Bible reading or by how often we pray or the good things that we do. We are saved by grace and grace alone through faith in you. Because grace is not something that we receive. Grace is your very presence in our lives by your Holy Spirit. For you are the gift that you give. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray in their brokenness, in their sinfulness, just like all of us, they would just simply cry out, Jesus, save me. I'm a sinner. Come into my life. Reveal yourself to me. Let me know I'm not alone. And I thank you, Lord, that you are so real. And I pray that you would show up in Door of Hope and through this community in powerful ways. And it would be manifested in an agape love, a graciousness. So we thank you for the life you've given us in this community. May our hearts be knit together in your love. And may we be conduits of your grace. We pray these things in your name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Glad you're here today.